the GD Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio flavored with a dash of humor. Welcome to intelligent, irreverent talk about plants and the planet they grow on. And here they are, Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak. Wait, wait, that's not the one I want. No, 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 no. See, I meant... The wrong laboratory. This was the one I wanted. Can I have an extra piece of candy for my stupid brother? He couldn't come with us because he's sitting in a pumpkin patch, waiting for the great pumpkin. It's so embarrassing to have to ask for something extra for that blockhead Linus. I got five pieces of candy. I got a chocolate bar. I got a quarter. I got a rock. Uh, it's going to be in uh, Randall's head now for the rest of the week, isn't it? That's exactly why I played it. And, uh, yes, I got a rock as well. Uh, everybody gets a rock on this program. Uh, we're very pleased to have on the phone with us from Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, Joy O'Keefe, Dr. Joy O'Keefe, Associate Professor in the Department of Biology and the uh, director for the Center for Bat Research, Outreach, and Conservation at Indiana State University. Welcome, Joy. Thank you for being with us. Hola. Thank you for having me on the show. <laughs> uh, you were telling us, uh, we, uh, those of you listening live on Facebook heard uh, some of this, that there are two things going on about your location. You're at a conference uh, of you know 300 of your closest biology friends there in mexico uh one you had to dodge a hurricane first didn't you yes definitely hurricane willow was coming in and tropical storm vicente wow wow it just never stops does it uh <laughs> and of course that one of them has already gone across the continent is creating a nor'easter on the uh, opposite side of uh of uh, the north american continent uh but mm-hmm. but the other thing you mentioned is bats and you're at a conference for bats and you said that the area has lots of bats tell us about that yes so there's a a tremendous diversity of bats here in mexico and they have uh, some bats that live in the tile roofs of a lot of the hotels around here and at night you can actually watch them emerge and fly around in flocks so kind of like we see starlings flying Mm -hmm. around in flocks Uh in the united states um, it's pretty impressive. We don't see anything like that in the United States. And then there are other bats. They have fruit bats here that eat the fruit from the trees. We don't have those in the United States, or at least not in Illinois and Indiana. And uh, the, those fruit bats uh, are rather large, and they leave rather large droppings around the pool here. Yikes. Now, for folks uh, listening to us, uh, whether it is via Facebook or on uh, WCGO 1590, um, they hear some squeaking in the background. That Those are not bats, are they? 
Right. Those are birds. Uh, birds actually often are calling within the range of our hearing, whereas bats, for the most part, are using sounds that are above the range of human hearing, you know, about echolocation. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. even when they're squeaking in the roosts uh, during the daytime, we hear them sometimes. But usually it's difficult to hear bats compared to birds. And there are plenty of birds here. Well, I think all of us or many of us have uh, a story. Usually it's a story or two stories about bats. Not you. You have lots of stories of bats, about <laughs> bats, I'm sure. Uh, I have a couple of bat stories, but the first one I want to tell you about uh, relates to what you were just saying about how bats uh, don't tend to fly in flocks. And if you do have mm -hmm. a flock of bats, is there a particular word that's used for a flock of bats? Yes, we call that a swarm. A swarm. Uh, yes. Well, if they're flying uh, during the... It, it, where we do see groups of bats in the United States, yeah. um, we would call those a swarm because those are bats usually at the entrance to a cave okay. mm -hmm. or a mine where they're going to hibernate for the winter. And then we will see bats group up and we see larger groups of bats, but it is very uncommon to see them in groups otherwise. Uh, and my story have, goes back to my youth, my misspent youth in uh, the suburb of Madison Heights, Michigan, uh, at a time when we could go across the street to the park right across the street, and at twilight, we would see bats flying around. Um, I don't know how often that happens now in, in our suburbs, but at the time, we would see bats, and what we would do as kids is we would throw rocks in the air, not to hit the bats because we knew we couldn't hit them, but to see them dive to follow the rocks. Now, uh, is, is that something they would do to check it out to make sure it wasn't uh, some kind of uh, prey for them? Yes, so all your bats there in uh, Michigan, where you grew up, would be insectivorous bats, and they would be checking out the rock to see if it was a large beetle or a large moth that they might be able to go after. We loved that. We 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 found that <laughs> torturing uh, the bats. No, it was entertainment. It was we were so entertained by it because oh look, the bats going to dive and try to follow the rock, and then they would you know sure. veer off immediately mm -hmm. when they realized it wasn't anything alive, and we would just keep doing that and. Uh, that would, and then it would get too They'd dark. They get bored with you, and... yeah, exactly, and they would go away. So that is that is my one. That's my first bat story. The other bat story will come later. But so okay. that takes me to you, uh, Doctor O'Keefe. How does a person become interested in studying bats? What happened to you? Well, all you have to do is go out and catch bats, and handle bats, and see bats in their natural environment. And if you like being out at night. Uh, then it's almost a guarantee that you're going to be hooked <laughs> in and you're going to love working with bats. I see this happen time and time again with my students and bats are so tremendously fascinating. I actually have an undergraduate student who is pre-med who's here at this conference with me and she's, you know, sure she's going to become a doctor, but now that she's sat for three days and talks, listening to experts from around the world talk about bats, mm -hmm. she's, she's wondering if maybe she wants to study bats. So they're just so fascinating that there's, there's so much to learn and they're, they're really unique mammals. Um, obviously the only mammal that can fly. And so once, once people start studying them, they usually, they usually get sucked in and they, they can't get away. And they're, they're what about 20% of all the mammals? Correct. So there are approximately 1,400 species of mammals here. We actually have a T-shirt that was uh, in our silent auction that says 1,395 species as of October 2018. Um, I'm sure that will change. Um, some of that is uh, discovering new species, but mm -hmm. often it's just us getting better with genetics and dividing species that we thought were one into multiple species. 
How much trouble are bats in worldwide? We know that there is white nose syndrome here uh, in the United States. Is it uh, all around the planet now? Uh, no, white nose syndrome is really only negatively impacting bats in North America. The fungus and and perhaps a little of the disease is also found in Europe and in Asia, but their bats seem to be adapted to the fungus that causes white nose syndrome, and they don't uh, are definitely not dying in large numbers like our bats are here. We've lost millions of bats. The last estimate about seven years ago was that we had lost around seven million bats. Well, so whoa, whoa, sure whoa. Set with a B, B with a B. No, no, Mil- seven, with a, a million, million, seven million. Okay, million, woo! So. All right. And then bat, bats do have some threats that are uh, pervasive around the world. Habitat loss um, is a big problem. Persecution is a large problem. Lots of people don't like bats um, because they uh, are afraid of them or because they roost in buildings and people don't want bats around in their buildings. So uh-huh. people kill bats in other parts of the world. And, and in uh, Southeast Asia, for example, bats are hunted pretty regularly, large bats and eaten and so that's a, that's a big problem for their populations. You know, I, I, it makes sense, but the idea that uh, an animal is persecuted is unique to me. I had not heard that before, but it makes total sense. And they're not the only animal that's persecuted. There are a lot right. of animals that are mm-hmm. feared, um, often reptiles, uh, and mm-hmm. um, what else? Um you, you don't fear a lot oh, of bees. Bees, yes. Right. Insects well, and we, reptiles, I would think, are, had the list. Right. Well, so we, we I, I find that we fear what we don't understand. And yeah. so that's why our job is so important to learn more about bats and then to disseminate information mm-hmm. to folks about bats so that they better understand them. And, and I've seen attitudes changing about bats in the United States. Um, and we're hoping to change attitudes around the world. There was actually a biologist here at the conference who talked about behavioral theories that she studied for a year to try to understand why people kill bats in Southeast Asia and how she can change their attitudes about the, uh, the norms, societal norms for hunting bats, what is acceptable. Do you see uh, societal norms uh, having changed here in the United States and in North America? I know <laughs> I, I can imagine that uh, trying to make a change, as you mentioned, in in other cultures can be like turning around the Titanic. Uh, Mm -hmm. In the United States, of course, I I played, uh, leading into this segment, a couple of pieces that relate to Halloween. And it seems to me this is the best of times and worst of times for biologists to talk about bats because of uh, all the silliness surrounding Halloween. And uh, I imagine that just leads to more myths uh, about bats. So, you know, my, my recommendation is let's pick a holiday uh, half a year away from Halloween and celebrate bats. Not Don't have bat week leading up to Halloween because it plays into those myths, don't you think? Sure, it does. And we and we do uh, have bat week timed in an interesting manner in that way. But I, I would say that, that the attitudes are changing and uh, even around Halloween. Mm-hmm. If you go into the store now and you look at the types of materials they have that have bats on them, the bats are, by and large, friendly-looking bats. They don't have large fangs, which, of course, our bats <laughs> in the United States don't have fangs, anyways. But you know, they don't—they don't have. Uh, they're not blood-sucking bats that you see in the store. Most of the time, they're friendly-looking bats. And I see, you know, bat lights, uh, bat 
napkins, cocktail napkins, you know, pretty, 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 pretty benign things that have bats on them. And I think that people are, are starting to think more positively about bats. And that's, that's partly a reflection of this white nose syndrome disease. Mm-hmm. So since it struck bats in New York back in 2006, we biologists have had to scramble to learn more about some of our bats as we're we're losing them right before our eyes. We're seeing bats go extinct in the United States, certain species. And and so we are really trying to learn a lot about bats. And one of the uh, sidebars of that is that we do a lot of education to try to bring more people onto our cause so that we can make uh, more progress. And so we've, we've done a tremendous amount of outreach and we do that in the bat center at Indiana state university. And I think that that's, uh, that that's helping to change the opinion, the public opinion on bats. That's uh, Dr. Joy O'Keefe from Indiana state university. Uh, uh, a few weeks ago, I was down your way. In fact, drove through Terre Haute, Indiana, um, coming up from mammoth cave. Uh, and one of the interesting mm-hmm. things that we had to do coming out of the cave, I meant to put a photo of it, and I forgot last night when I was putting this together. Uh, I took a photo of us wiping our feet on the mat when you come out of the cave, You this soapy mat, and, you, and they make you slog through it. Uh, they don't care if you get your tennis shoes wet uh, because uh, they're trying to keep white nose syndrome from spreading elsewhere. Uh, as our, our guide said, well, we know it's here at Mammoth Cave already. We just don't want to send it out anywhere else. Um, and what would have been in that soapy water that we walked through? Well, we've we've been testing out various solutions for decontaminating gear for years, but I imagine that the thing that they're using at Mammoth Cave is woolite, actually, because woolite is very good at scrubbing debris off of gear, and mm-hmm. it can help to dis- to scrub that fungus off of your shoes. We actually use alcohol or boiling water to decontaminate our gear, and biologists decontaminate between cave visits, so when they go from one cave to another, or uh, between sites where we're netting for bats, and mm-hmm. even in the summer mm-hmm. when bats aren't being killed by the disease, we still try to clean off our gear as best we can to prevent spreading the fungus from one site to another. Do we have any idea how that uh, disease originated? Are there any theories on that? Sure. Well, after we found white nose syndrome here in the United States, then we figured out that the fungus was the causal agent that this, this, fungus we'd never seen before was was causing this problem with our bats. And we went to Europe and learned that they sometimes see bats with the fungus growing on them during the winter. And when folks took samples and, and uh, assessed that, they found it was the same species. Uh, it's a different strain, but it's the same species. And so we think that the fungus was perhaps brought over to a cave in New York where it was first discovered in a show cave by someone who you know, had no idea that it was on their shoes or on their backpack that they had had in a cave in Europe somewhere. And so then they, they inadvertently brought the fungus over, and like any good invasive species, it just spread. And our bats were new to it. They'd never experienced this, and so it really caused a lot of problems for certain species. So for some of our listeners who might not know what white-nose fungus is, it's the disease spreading across the country in 33 states, seven or eight provinces, just found in, in Washington state. How does it affect the bats? Why is it such a serious problem? So the fungus grows on bats and in a cave environment. During the winter in particular, it thrives between 12 and 15 degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it actually grows on the skin of bats and 
can cause some necrosis, causes their wing tissue to be uh, to, to, to develop holes, which can affect flight, obviously, but also affects their uh, evaporative water loss across their wing membrane, which is really important so bats can actually get dehydrated uh, because they don't have uh, a full, fully intact wing membrane. But the fungus is also just really irritating to bats. So imagine having like a really bad case of athlete's foot while you're trying to sleep for two weeks. Uh, that's what that's what's happening. You know, these bats need to stay in deep torpor, which we mm-hmm. call hibernation, uh, for long periods of time to avoid expending a lot of energy during the winter because there's nothing to eat since they all eat insects. And uh, and and then they're they're actually waking up much more often. They're waking up every three to four days to try to groom the fungus off of them, and uh, you know deal with this this infection of a fungus. And so, uh, bats end up actually starving if they uh, are in a cave affected by the fungus. Then they may not make it through the winter because they don't have enough fat reserves to keep burning the energy they need to keep waking up all these repeated times. But even if a bat doesn't make it or does make it through the winter, when they emerge uh, from hibernation, the females become pregnant with pups um, and and have to fly off to some remote area to raise their pups for the summer in a different environment than the cave. And and the energy that it requires to do that uh, may not be there. All and right. So then Dr. Dr. Okay, we need to take a short break. We'll be back with more Bat Talk on the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Put a spell on you. Because of mine. Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki, and we have Dr. Joy O'Keefe, who is an associate professor in the Department of Biology and the director of the Center for Bat Research, Outreach, and Conservation at Indiana State University. Uh, she's attending a conference. You're wrapping up, and you're going to catch a plane right after you talk to us, right? That's correct. Coming back. And we appreciate you taking the time. She's in the hotel room with the birds all around her. No bats, as far as we know right now. Um, and uh, she's in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, uh, where they just wrapped up the conference. All right, we were talking uh, off air on the Facebook stream about uh, the um, um, about the the different kinds of bats in the Midwest. We should get into that just a little bit. We'll get into myths in just a second. But um, we were, I was saying, well, you must have the same number of bats in Illinois as Indiana, but that might not exactly be the case, is it, uh, Doctor O'Keefe? Right. Uh, so we we both have uh, a number of caves in the lower portions of Indiana and Illinois, but you have some caves that harbor a few species that we don't normally see in Indi- in Indiana. So you actually have 13 species of bats in Illinois. And how many are in, in Indiana? Well, we could get the same 13 species, but two of those and possibly three are species we just never see. So they may have been there historically or they may pop up again sometime in the future, but um, we're more sitting around 10. Hmm. So you've lost track of those. They, they, I take it they appear in Illinois, but not in Indiana, that you just don't find them in your area anymore? Yes, you have some very swampy habitat down in the mm-hmm. southern part of the state um, that attracts a couple of species that we don't have. And then you have some really nice rocky habitat also down in the southern part of the state that attracts another bat, the small-footed bat, which likes to roost under pieces of rock 
that are sitting on top of more rocks. They really like rock crevices. <laughs> yeah. You have great habitat for that in southern Illinois. And the others, what, the southeastern bat? The southeastern myotis and also the raffinesque big-eared bat. Uh, and... I have a cheat sheet here, by the way. <laughs> and, and, and where's that cheat sheet from? This cheat sheet, uh, Natural History of Illinois Bats by Joyce E. Hoffman, Illinois Natural History Survey. Well, there you go. I mean, he... yes, they have a great web page on bats for Illinois. Ah, well, I have to add that to to uh, the blog post. Uh, one of the things we mentioned also was the economic interest of keeping bats healthy. Uh, they're they're great pollinators, aren't they, Doctor O'Keefe? Yes, although that's not an ecosystem service provided by our bats in Indiana and Illinois, but that is true around the world, especially in the neotropics like Mexico, where I am right now, that bats are pollinators. Bats provide um, a really valuable service worldwide as major consumers of insects. So all of our bats in Indiana and Illinois are insectivorous, and a bat can consume half to all of its body weight in insects in one night. So wow. a really valuable service Holy for us. Holy smoke. Wow. Wow, that's all right. Imagine you. Uh, okay, I would imagine uh, eating a dinner where I consume two hundred pounds at a sitting. That's not a good thing, is it? <laughs> that's <laughs> no, a lot of pizza. Have really fast metabolism to work through that. <laughs> no kidding. Of course, if I were flying around, I, yeah, you're right. I'd probably be burning up all those calories. That's amazing. Right. You know, and and from what I understand, the tequila industry kind of relies on bats as well. Yes, definitely. So there are some bats that are pollinators of the agave plants, and they mm -hmm. actually follow a trail of agaves from south to north as they migrate north in the summer to uh, spend the summer in either northern Mexico or in the United States in Arizona, New Mexico. And then they fly back south along the other side of a mountain chain, pollinating agave as they go back to Mexico. So we actually have at the conference here some bat-friendly tequila <laughs> and I encourage your cool. listeners to look up bat-friendly tequila. So that is something that uh, some of the bat biologists here in Mexico have pushed for in recent years. That's that's a great I, idea. I was actually reading an article on how some of the tequila farmers are working with conservationists to exactly so Im yes. improve how the agave is is harvested and kept and leave the flowers on. Right. So they're leaving 20% of the plants with flowers so that mm -hmm. bats can pollinate, which actually helps their agave crop because it brings in more genetic diversity through pollination. And then that way the bats have something to eat. So these agave farms aren't just, you know, devoid of bats. All right. This takes me to my second bat story, which happened about 20 years ago in a third floor apartment here in Chicago. Uh, and I was home alone, sitting in the living room, and suddenly a bat comes flying in the living room, which is a little uh, disturbing if you're you're sitting by yourself there. And it started flying around, and I sort of ducked and waited, and then suddenly it was quiet. And I thought, okay, I got a bat in the house. Where do I think the bat has gone? I figured, okay, it's up high, probably. I don't know whether that's just uh, in you know whether that's accurate or not. And I thought, mm -hmm. probably in a dark room. So I went back to the dining room in the back of the apartment. And, of course, the bat was on the molding at the top of the wall. Um, mm -hmm. And I thought, now what do I do? I went, aha, I have a butterfly net. Everybody in the world has butterfly nets in their apartments, right? <laughs> uh, so I got next to the bat, grabbed the butterfly net, went whoop, grabbed, got the bat in the net, took it out to the back porch, and it Flew out of the net, and that was the end of that. So uh, it actually ended up very happily for both of us. Um, 
What about bats that get into your house? Uh, what do you need to be uh, concerned about, if anything? Well, there is a concern that uh, someone in the house could be bitten and wouldn't be aware that they were bitten. You know, if that bat had bitten you, you would be well aware because you were watching the bat and, and paying attention. But perhaps someone who's sleeping or a, a small child or someone who's just not able to report adequately whether or not they were bitten, it is a concern. So, you know, the the health department will advise that if you find a bat in your house that you should collect the bat and get it tested for rabies or that you should go and get post-exposure shots for rabies yourself. The reality is that very few bats actually have rabies. So we find it in less than 1% of the bats that are actually turned in to be tested. Uh, So it's a very small fraction of all the bats in Illinois that do have rabies. But it happens from time to time. The best thing to do is to avoid getting bitten by the bat (laughs) if you can. So wear heavy gloves, Mm -hmm. use your butterfly net. Like you said, everybody has one in their apartment, right? So (laughs) you should be able to grab the bat and get it outside um, safely. You can use a shoebox. Uh-huh. Um, or a sure. dish towel, but you know, yeah. avoid being bitten. Most of our bats are pretty small, so it shouldn't be a problem to avoid being bitten if you do try to evict it. All right, so it takes us to some of the uh, other myths that are on a site that uh, you turned me on to, which is Bat Conservation International, uh, and they have headlines, and one sentence uh, response is, blind as a bat, forget it. Bats are flying mice, nope. Bats get tangled mm-hmm. in your hair, get real. Bats are bloodsuckers. Um, not so much, uh, all bats are rabid. You just address that. So, uh, I, I didn't realize that bats have as much sight as, as pretty much any mammal, right? Mm -hmm. They do see pretty well. They can find their landmarks and sometimes bats turn off echolocation while they're flying around. There was a talk about that at the conference here this week where bats are flying around silent and you wouldn't expect that, but Mm -hmm. they can navigate with their vision. There are, uh, about 200 species of bats in uh, Southeast Asia, the flying foxes that don't use, um, and also in Africa and other parts of the old world tropics, but that don't use echolocation at all. And they navigate purely with their vision. And they really have big eyes. We call a lot of those bats the flying foxes. They have big dog-like faces with big eyes. Uh, and, and and the one thing I was interested in here, uh, under bats are flying mice, uh, they write bats are mammals, but they are not rodents in fact they are more closely related to humans than to rats and mice is right really yes yes we can figure that out genetically and we share more genes in common with bats Mm. than uh we do with mice and rodents so yes they're they're more like us which is pretty cool that is (laughs) i can't wait to sprout wings and uh, fly or get webbing on my on (laughs) under my arms and and get the butterfly net ready randall (laughs) Yeah, but that's that's for me. Yeah. Uh, so what have we missed here, uh, Joy, uh, about bats that you want to get across? We have a couple of minutes. Well, I think it's important for people to try to understand more about bats. As we talked about, it's really critical that we get more people thinking positively about them because they do face so many threats. So go out and look uh, for bats at night mm-hmm. in Chicago. Of course, this isn't a good time because they're starting to move to their winter sites where they're going to spend the winter, but maybe next spring and in the summer. There's also lots of bat programs around Chicago. Some of the forest preserves and some of the nature parks, nature centers do bat programs during the summer. The Lincoln Park Zoo has a citizen science uh, website where you can go on and help them with some of their research on mammals around the Chicagoland area. They're also doing acoustic surveys for bats and would be a great resource for folks who want to ask questions about bats in Chicagoland. And Will County has a big 
right. that program I, as yeah, well. Yeah, I put uh, a link there to Will County as well. And we had a, a, a quick question about Will County. Did you see that, Peggy? Uh, I did not, but I'll find uh, it. Okay. Uh, well, uh, we probably don't have time for that. But you, I think you also mentioned something. That, is a Field Museum doing something next spring? Yeah, so we're having a meeting in April at the Field Museum of Natural History. On It's the Midwest Bat Working Group meeting, so we'll have experts from around the Midwest who come together to talk about bats there in Chicago. Uh, and is that open to the public? Uh, it's a conference like the one that I'm at now. So, um, uh, you know, if somebody was interested, I'd recommend getting on the Midwest Bat Working Group website, which you can just Google and uh, find out a little bit more information about it. All right, here's the question. Let's a uh, quick answer, and I don't want to spread any rumors uh, one of our listeners says she heard that uh, in Will County, a high percentage of bats have rabies. We just uh, debunked the rabies thing. Uh, do you think that's some sort of rumor or myth? Uh, you know, there may have been a couple instances where bats were found with rabies, and so that might translate to someone thinking there's a high percentage. But re- in reality, it's a very low percentage across the bat population in that area that would have rabies. Like I said, less than 1% of the bats that get tested actually are positive. Well, uh, Dr. Joy O'Keefe from Indiana State University, thank you so much. This was uh, fascinating, enlightening stuff. Uh, have a safe trip home, and when you get into town, come into the studio sometime, and we'll, and we'll talk here, okay? Okay, sounds good. Thank you. That just leads me to say, am I not green? You're green. I are green. We are green. I are Devo. And until next time, go green or... Go home. Alive. It's alive. It's alive.